Okay, let's have a look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 36 to 39 is where we're up to in our march through the book of Isaiah. It'd be great if you can open up your Bible or look on with the person next to you. You can see a bit of an outline up here on the board of where we're going today. In particular, let me just make a, a few uh, opening remarks about this particular section of the book of Isaiah. So we've been looking at this book of Isaiah on and off during this uh, first semester, now up to chapter 36. This section from 36 to 39, as you look at it there in front of you, if you have a look at it, it's different to a lot of the rest of the book of Isaiah. How come? Well, it's in prose. A lot of this is in prose, whereas most of the rest of the book seems to be all in poetry. So it stands out to you as a bit of a unit. What's more, once you start to actually read it, you'll realise that what this section of the book is, is the scene. It's the scene that joins the two main sort of halves of the book. In particular, the scene is at the end of chapter 37. So you sort of have, like I've got my jumper here, right? And just next to the zipper, there's a little bit of material there and a little bit of material there. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at that bit there of the book of Isaiah, right? You've got 36, 37, then the sort of the actual scene, and then 38, 39. That's where these panels, right? That's where we're at. In particular, why do I say those are the panels? Well, because the theme of 36 and 37 is the country of Assyria. Now, if you've been with us over the course of the semester, you know Assyria was the dominant superpower, and they've been really they've been in the frame the whole way through the book of Isaiah, and that's what those chapters are about. But 38 and 39 are actually about Babylon. Now, up to this point in the book of Isaiah, Babylon has been yet another country that was sort of oppressed by Assyria. Right? And so Babylon have even tried, and we'll see that today, to form an alliance with the nation of Judah, God's people. However, what happens here is there's a shift in focus from Assyria to Babylon. And Babylon will be the nation that, a, that really the rest of the book is concerned about. So that's why these two, I think, uh, form this scene. In particular, Isaiah's done this very deliberately because what he tells you in 38 and 39 about Babylon actually takes place before what happens about Assyria. So he's actually taken these two events, or a couple of events, and changed their chronological order. That is, he actually put them out of chronological order, I think deliberately, to say, here's the wrapping up of the Assyrian bit, and here's the bit that launches in, you, you into the Babylonian bit. And he's deliberately moved them out of chronological order to serve that purpose. Now, within these four chapters then, there's three moments that are described. Three events are narrated for you. The first one is about Assyria, as I said, and that's 36, 37. Then, in chapter 38, there's um, Hezekiah gets sick. He's the king of Judah. And then, in chapter 39, some envoys come from Babylon. So, three different things are narrated, and we're going to look at that. However, when you actually read these chapters... Now, this is what... This is just, I mean... <coughs> In my preparation, I sit there and I, I read the Bible. You know, I read the text and I read it and I read it and I read it and I try to work out how, how does this fit together? That's what you've got to do, right? Um, it seems to me that there's a pattern within the narration of these three moments, a recurring pattern. The pattern, it seems to me to be, is that there's a threat and then there's a response of faith, which is, a, which is prayer, 
Then there's a word of the Lord with a confirmatory sign. And then there's God's response, in particular deliverance. It seems to me that there's this pattern of threat, prayer, word from the Lord, and deliverance. That's in each of the moments. So that's the pattern that I'm going to use to try to walk us through these chapters. Finally, the last thing I just want to say by way of introduction is I can see that many of you are working very hard at the moment in terms of getting essays and assignments done. Who's still got an essay or an assignment due? Most people. Who's got exams? Who has no more exams and no more assignments and has actually finished? Now, you're a staff worker, you don't count. Did anyone else? That's good, because if there was, we would have to be fighting the temptation of jealousy. So it's good that the Lord has preserved us from jealousy. So, because I can see you're all working very hard and some of you are indeed already asleep, that's okay, I won't take any events. I understand, but what I'm going to try and do is just, I'm going to give you what I think is the big point of these four chapters in one sentence. I'm going to give it to you now so you can sort of check out the rest of the time. I'd like you not to do that, but if you have to, you So here's the big point. I think this is the big point of these four chapters. This is what I think God is telling us through His Word. He's saying this. Trust the Lord, that is Yahweh. Trust the Lord, who alone is God, because He alone hears, rules, and delivers. Trust the Lord, who alone is God, because He alone hears, rules, and delivers. That's what I think is the big point now. I better justify that to you, right? That's actually the theme of these, these chapters. Um, so, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to look through the three moments according to this pattern. So, three threats. Here's threat number one. Chapters 36 and 37. The threat is the king of Assyria. Anyone remember the king of Assyria's name? I did mention it last week. Sennacherib. Well done. That's incredible that anyone remembered that, given that you're probably filling your head with all sorts of other, you know, cramming all that uni information in the moment, but that's well done. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. Threat number one is Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. So, in your Bible there, have a look at chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Now, if you've been with us and been looking at this book of Isaiah, we know that this has been something that the Lord said was going to happen as a result of the fact that Judah, God's people, had not just sat firm, stood firm and not just sort of waited in faith for the Lord to deliver them from the Assyrians. They'd gone about alternative strategies. Last week we saw that they decided to form an alliance with the Egyptians as a, a political solution to their troubles. But that was actually an act of unfaith of not trusting the Lord. And so what we see here is what the Lord said would happen. Here comes Sennacherib and the Assyrian army to now a bit of payback on all those nations that are actually trying to rebel against their superpower authority. Right? And so here he comes against Judah. Judah, you form an alliance with the Egyptians, it's time to kick your butt. And in he comes with his army and takes all the fortified cities of Judah right up to Jerusalem, the capital, which is the sort of the last bastion, which is, I assume, the most fortified of all the cities. We can actually confirm this if you uh, want to go and check. We have documents from uh, the Assyrian Empire 
and Sennacherib in his own annals, it's actually recorded that he he says that he came into Judah and took, I think it was 46 cities, towns, fortified towns, 46 places he took, and, it, and he sort of has to acknowledge that he actually, at the end of the day, didn't quite get Jerusalem. So we actually have confirmation from another source that this is actually what happened. So here he comes towards Jerusalem, Verse 2, he sends then, he hasn't yet come to Jerusalem himself, but he sends a delegation, sends a field commander with a section of his army to down to Jerusalem. And what they basically say is, well, you've got a choice. You've got a choice. Either we're going to kick your butt or you can give up now. And uh, the way that uh, all of chapter 36 is basically what the field commander comes and brings to Jerusalem, what he says. So Hezekiah sends out three officials. They come out, they meet the field commander. The field commander starts saying to them, well, why are you trusting King Hezekiah? Why are you trusting the Lord, Yahweh, your God? Because basically, no one has been able to withstand against my master, Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, so why are you doing this? It's just going to be bad for you. The three officials say, look, can you basically speak in a quieter voice, and would you mind speaking in Aramaic rather than Hebrew? Because the people on the city walls, they can hear you, and they understand Hebrew. So if you wouldn't mind speaking in Aramaic, then we can just have a conversation without them hearing. And the field commander says, uh, no. Um, like, do you think I've come here just to speak to you and to your master, Hezekiah? And then he announces to, uh, he keeps going, saying the similar sort of things to the whole city. And basically, the challenge that comes via Sennacherib's field commander is this. Who are you going to trust? That's what these chapters were about. Who are you going to trust? And he particularly says, don't trust Hezekiah. Rather, you should actually trust me. He says, I'm the one who actually can save you. I'm the one who can actually bless you. I'm the one, if you trust me, I can give you vineyards and I can give you sort of prosperity. All the things actually that your God has promised you. That's what Yahweh promised you. But don't trust me. And in particular, he issues a challenge, really, to their God, Yahweh, the living God. Have a look in chapters 36, verse 18. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will give us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Where uh, Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Two of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me. How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? It's a clear challenge. He says, your gods are not gods. Your God, Yahweh, he's not going to rescue you. No other gods ever rescued their country from us. So there's the challenge. Who are you going to trust? So that's the threat. Okay. That's the threat then. What's the response? Have a look at chapter 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Now, um, Hezekiah was a good guy. We uh, know a lot about Hezekiah, really, because he's talked about in 2 Chronicles and also in 2 Kings. We get other accounts about Hezekiah and what he did. And if you read the account in 2 Chronicles, no, 2, two Kings, sorry, 2 Kings, I think it's 
verse, uh, chapter 18. It basically says, There was no king of Judah before or after Hezekiah who was as good as him. He was a great king. Now, here he's doing a really good thing. When there's a threat, what does he do? He goes to the temple of the Lord, presumably, to pray. And that's good, right? Because up to this point we've seen he's done some things that maybe weren't so wise, forming political alliances with Egypt. That wasn't so, so smart. But here he actually does a good thing. He goes and prays. Uh, while he's there in the temple, he sends a word to Isaiah, and Isaiah gets a word from the Lord, and it's relayed back to Hezekiah. And the word basically is a uh, comforting one. Now, at the moment, I'm still under the broad heading of, the, in the terms of the pattern, still under prayer here, right? Because, oh, I'll, I'll show you where we're Here's the word that comes back initially to Hezekiah. It's in chapter 37, verse 6. Isaiah said to Hezekiah's officials, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with a sword. So three things that the Lord says to Isaiah. First of all, I'm going to, don't be afraid, but because this is what's going to happen. I'm going to make him hear a report, it's an accurate hear a report. I'm going to make him want to go back to his own country, and when he gets there, he's going to die. Okay. Alright, well that's fantastic. The Lord's going to save. And sure enough, what starts to happen is exactly that. What was the first thing? He would hear a report. Have a look what happens. Verse 8 and 9. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. So this is an initial good sign, because remember, it was the field commander and part of the army that was there at Jerusalem. He hears, Sennacherib's moved a bit, so he takes that section of the army, and they move away from Jerusalem, looking good. And then, verse 9, Now Sennacherib received a report. Right, this is what the Lord said would happen. That Tohaka, the king of Cush, or Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Now, this is where it gets a bit messy. You could think, okay, he's heard a report, so he's moving away to do business with the Egyptians. That's exactly what the Lord said. And the next thing the Lord said would happen is he would go back to his own country. But what Hezekiah does is he writes a threatening letter. Sort of like what lawyers do today. He writes a threatening letter to Hezekiah and the people in Jerusalem. And basically the letter says, don't think I've forgotten about you. Don't think your Lord's going to save you. Because basically I'll, I'll tidy up this mess and I'll come back and I'll kick your, kick your butts exactly as I said it so Hezekiah gets this, this note, right? And things were looking good, but then he gets this letter. So what does he do? Because see, the threat hasn't gone away, has it? What he does is he prays again. Have a look at verse 14. Hezekiah received this letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And here you get a... This is maybe the high, one of the high points of Isaiah, of the whole book of Isaiah, one of them. Because here you get just a fantastic prayer of Hezekiah, who was the king, who was the anointed one, the Messiah with a little m, if you like, the Christ with a little c. That's what a Messiah and Christ mean, anointed one. It's a beautiful, fantastic prayer. 
Let's read it. Verse uh, 16. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wooden stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only <coughs> God. This little section here where we get Hezekiah's prayer and then the Lord's word to him are rich. They are really rich in theology. That is, understanding of who the one true living God really is. So two points out of Hezekiah's prayer, then we'll get to two points, or three points out of what the Lord says back in return. But the two points here about God are, first of all, who is the real king? Well, it's the Lord who's enthroned over all the kingdoms of the earth. See, the real king isn't Hezekiah, the real king isn't Sennacherib, the real king over all the nations of the earth here is this living God, Yahweh, the Lord. He's the true king. And we know that, right? Because that was sort of Isaiah chapter 6, we saw that, remember? Isaiah's vision, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and just the hem of his robe filled the entire temple complex in his vision. We've known this already, and here you get Hezekiah reflecting that truth. That's the first thing. The Lord is king over all. Second truth you get, though, is that he demonstrates his reality to everyone by saving his people. The Lord demonstrates his reality to everyone by saving his own people. You can see it there in verse 20. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from Sennacherib's hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Because what had Sennacherib said? He said, look, I've taken all these other countries, their gods haven't saved them. So what makes you think your God's going to do any different? And Hezekiah understands that, right? He says, actually, Lord, save us, then everyone will know that you're the real God. And that's that's what happens. Look, the Lord demonstrates his reality, his being the only true God, by saving his people against the threat. Okay, so there's some uh, theology coming out of the prayer. Now, what's the pattern? Threat, prayer, word. A word from the Lord. That's what comes next. Then, first round, then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. And then comes, in the next section down to verse 35, this word from the Lord. It's a word that pronounces judgment on Sennacherib. It's a word that gives comfort to Hezekiah, the people of Jerusalem. And so let's draw three points of theology out of this. First one I've already just read. Verse 21. The Lord is the God who hears and answers prayer. He says, because you've prayed to me, I will act. This is what's going to happen. This is who the Lord is. He is the one who really does hear and answer prayer. Second point is that you get here that the Lord is the one who is in sovereign control over all things. See, uh, what he says here in this word is, Sennacherib, you think that it's by your own strength and awesomeness 
that you've been able to take all these other countries, right? And burn their gods. You think it's because of you. But what the Lord says there in verse 26, he says, Have you not heard? Long ago, long ago I ordained it. In the days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stones. He says, actually, you're not in control. I'm the one who's in control. So it's the Lord who is actually in control of all these things. It's his plans that are brought to pass. Third thing, final thing, is in the very last verse, verse 35. Why does the Lord save his people? He does it, verse 35, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Why does the Lord save his people? He does it for his own sake, for his own reputation or for his own glory, for the sake of his own name. But he also does it for the sake of the agreement, the promise, the covenant he made with David. That is, David, who was king of Israel, right? He was a Messiah, small m, a Christ, a C, small c. He does it for his own sake and for the sake of the promises he made, because he's faithful to those promises. That's why the Lord saves. So as I say, rich in theology, there's sort of five things we've drawn out about the, the one true God out of just that little section. Now, the pattern was prayer... Sorry, threat, prayer, word, and then deliverance. Now remember, the Lord had said three things will happen here. He said, Sennacherib will hear a report, he'll then retreat, and then he'll die. We've had the retreat. Sorry, we've had the report. And what you get next is the retreat, and then his death. And that's what how the, that's how chapter 37 finishes. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out, and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up next morning, behold, dead bodies. 185,000. Just by Judah sitting still, resting in his promise, trusting him. Isn't this what the Lord said all the way through should be their strategy? And at this point, when they come in prayer, faced with a threat, the Lord delivers. Now, Sennacherib's response was, so Sennacherib, verse 37, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh. So he returns, as the Lord said would happen. Then, verse 38, one day while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons killed him with the sword. And I think you're meant to get a bit of the terrible irony here. What have been Sennacherib's claim all the way along? Your gods aren't gods. I've come in, I've taken them all. You think the Lord's going to save you? And there he is, praying to his own God when he meets his death as the Lord had said he would. Who is the real God? So you see that the Lord demonstrates his reality to all nations, including to Sennacherib, by delivering his people. So there's the deliverance. Okay, now it'll take a long time to get through that first pattern because it's a long couple of chapters. There's the sort of the pattern seen through in this first thread. A moment just to reflect. I said before that there's rich theology in those couple of chapters. In fact, I can put it into one sentence, if you like. And I'm going to. Uh, it's a sentence with a few clauses, but I've already actually said all this, so you don't have to write down here. But here it is. Here's the picture then, I think we get of the Lord here. Who is the Lord? 
Who is the true God? He is the sovereign king who demonstrates his reality to all by hearing and saving his people for his own sake and for the sake of his covenant with his Messiah. That's who we see here. Who's the Lord? Who is God? He's the sovereign king who demonstrates his reality to all people by hearing and saving his people for the sake of his own name and for the sake of his covenant with his Messiah. Now, we can stop. That's, that's I mean, there's, that's heaps of truth there, right? To sort of chew over, reflect on, praise God for, think about, take into your life. I just want to point out one thing. Just, just think with me for a moment about that last part. He hears and saves his people for the sake of his own name, his own glory, and for the sake of his promise, his covenant with his Messiah. Let me say why I think you should treasure that truth. You and I both should treasure that truth because in that truth is great assurance for you. For all of us. Why does God, the one true living God, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, why does he save you? Why will he save me? Because of my righteousness? Because of my effort? Because of my sincerity? Because of my desire to love him? Because I at least repent of my sins? Because I sing the songs? Because I read my Bible? Because I preach? Why will he save me? What does that truth tell you? It's nothing to do with me. He saves us for his own sake. He saves us because of the promises he made to his Messiah. And I would say, who's the great Messiah capital? It's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And he promises to not lose any who are given to his son. And so guess what? My assurance is not based in me at all. My assurance is actually based entirely in him. In his faithfulness to his own character. In his ability and commitment to seeking his own glory. In his promises to Jesus, his son. That's where my assurance is. It's not tied up with me. And isn't that great comfort? Isn't that fantastic to know? Isn't that amazing? That's, that's one of the beauties of the Christian faith. The truth of the Jesus is that it's actually about grace. That's actually secured in, in God and his character and not in my effort and my works. So I think those truths are worth reflecting on and taking in and hopefully there's some comfort there and assurance for you there. Okay, well, that's our threat number one. Woo! Threat number two. <laughs> threat number two, that's right, we speed up from here. Threat number two. We move from, threat number one was a national threat. Threat number two, chapter 38, a very personal threat. Chapter 38, verse 1. Remember, we've crossed the scene here, right? That was about Assyria. And that sort of rounded out the whole Assyrian story, really, to that point, because what's happened? Well, they've been, their threat's been taken away from Judah and Sennacherib's dead, right? That's the end of the Assyrian problem. We cross the scene, the focus shifts to Babylon, but we also go back in time, probably about 11 years. So we actually go back before the Assyrian crisis is resolved. And that's your, that'll become apparent if we read In those days, 38 verse 1, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. It's worth just stopping here about that, okay? He's not just got a bit of a man cold. He's actually ill to the very point of death. The prophet Isaiah 
went to him and said, you know, this is maybe some hope here, the prophet was like, I'm going to work the Lord. How about this for a bit of bedside <laughs> This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. <laughs> Nothing like a bit of truth there. Put your house in order. You are going to die. You are not going to recover, says the Lord. <laughs> There's the threat. What's the response? Well, the pattern is Hezekiah, good man that he was, he responds with prayer. Verse 2. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion. You have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He prays. And uh, he's, he's not um, talking himself up there either. I mean, as I said before, the, the testimony from uh, two, two Chronicles, uh, sorry, two Kings, uh, is that he was indeed the best king that you <coughs> had. And so there's a sense in which, yeah, this is this is who he was, and he prays this prayer, and what. What's the pattern? Well, the pattern is, in response to his prayers and tears, comes the word of the Lord. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and tell Hezekiah, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend the city. That's great news for Hezekiah, though that verse, that verse there, doesn't that sort of surprise you? Verse 6, why are we suddenly thinking about Assyria? Where did that come from? Um, sort of intrudes a bit on the, on the narrative at some point. Uh, I wonder whether, and this is a supposition, I wonder actually what's happened here is, when Isaiah hears that he's not going to get better, he's going to die, he's worried not just for himself. I wonder if he's actually worried for the nation. Because Assyria at that point is still the big superpower, they're the ones who's threatening. What's his job as king, as small and messiah? His job is to help under God deliver his people, rescue them. But now he's not, he's going to die. And he's not be worried actually about what's going to happen to his people. And in fact, who's his descendant who comes straight after him? Who comes next? Well, if you've read uh, the book of Kings or Chronicles, the next king is Manasseh. Manasseh is actually the worst king they ever had. A terrible king. And my, I wonder whether maybe Hezekiah, I mean, Vanessa would have been pretty young, but maybe, but maybe he had a sense that this isn't going to go great. Like, this troubles me. And so anyway, I just wonder when, then when the Lord responds, he says, I'll add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you from the hands of the Assyrians. They're both are tied together. His life, Hezekiah's life, is tied to their deliverance. Okay. So there's the word of the Lord. Uh, the word the Lord also gives a confirmatory sign though. Now this might um, literally rock your world, this sign. Though maybe you'd have to be a physicist to understand what I mean there. But we'll see if I can explain it to you. Verse 7. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he's promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. 
So the sunlight went back to 10 steps that had gone down. Now, you, now I know, if you, you know nothing about physics and you just skipped out all those parts of school and go, yeah, well, so what? Anyway, <laughs> it's a big deal. See, there's this ball of fire in the sky. The sun, from our perspective, right, it rises in the east and goes down in the west, right? From our perspective, it's actually we're spinning around. <laughs> and so what happens is, as the sun goes from east to west, the shadows go that way, right? You get it? That's how the shadows go, like that. What he's saying is, this is what I'll do to show you that I'll make you better and deliver you from this series. It's gone down 10 steps so far, we'll just make it swing back the other way. Okay, that means the sun... Now, if the sun's doing that, and actually the sun moves because we're spinning, that means that we've, for a while, had to spin the other way. The whole world has had to spin the other way. <laughs> What's more, that massive change of momentum didn't make us all go, like that. Oh, you can't believe any of this stuff in the Bible. Like, look at it. This is ridiculous. How can you? You're an intelligent university Christian. You believe this? Honestly, you may as well believe in Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, there's a point something out to you. As I mentioned before, Hezekiah, we read about him in uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, which is uh, seems to have been written a bit later, actually reflects a bit more on this event. In fact, many of the events of Hezekiah's life. And this is what it says. You can jot down the reference. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31. It says there that what happened is the Babylonian envoys, we're going to read in the next chapter, they come to Egypt, they come to Judah because they've heard about the miraculous sign that took place in the land. So this sun going back on the steps seems to have been only a local phenomenon. It didn't happen in Babylon. In fact, we don't have any indication it happened anywhere more than just on the steps of Ahaz. It seems to be a local phenomenon, not a global phenomenon, which means it didn't require the whole world to switch back the other way. It's just somehow the Lord made it happen on that stairwell that the shadows went back. How did he do that? I don't know. What I'm saying is it doesn't appear to be in any sense of global phenomenon. So I just want to throw that out there. It changes the level of divine intervention into the natural order that we're talking about. I'll throw that out to you there. Oh, there's a confirmatory sign. What's the pattern? After the word and sign comes the deliverance. And we've, we've seen that, yes, uh, because the Lord, indeed, in verse 9, uh, uh, Hezekiah writes about his experience in the rest of chapter 38. Verse 9 introduces it by saying, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. The Lord keeps his promise. Okay. So, a moment of reflection here. A reflection. We've seen here, so far, two prayers of Hezekiah. Two prayers. It's worth reflecting on those prayers given that Hezekiah is the king of Judah. He is the Messiah, the Christ, with small and small c. And uh, what have you seen him doing in these two prayers? The first prayer about the Assyrians, he's interceding for his people. Lord, deliver your people. Now, does that make you think of anything? When you think about the greater Messiah who was to come from David's line, one of, one of Hezekiah's own sort of descendants of can you think of any time when Jesus, the great Messiah, prayed for the deliverance of his people? 
Well, uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, just before his death. Jesus prays for himself, but he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you. He prays for all of us who have believed, he says, in his testimony that's come through those disciples. He prays, and in particular, if you look at John 17, verses 9, 11, or 15, you can see there that what he prays is for the deliverance of his people, that they will be protected from the evil one. Not protected just against the Assyrians, but he actually prays that they be protected from the great enemy, Satan himself. Jesus intercedes for his people. What was the second prayer of Hezekiah? second prayer of Hezekiah was he was faced with his imminent death and prayed for his own life and it seems the salvation of his people somehow connected to that. Well, transpose forward to the Lord Jesus. Can you think of a time where Jesus did something like that? What about the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, Matthew chapter uh, 22, uh, chapter 26, sorry. Three times in Matthew 26, Jesus, just before he's arrested, he prays, Lord, if it be possible, take this cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of his coming death. If it be possible, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours. He prays like Hezekiah. Now, God's answer was different, wasn't it? I will save my people. But it is not possible for me to take this cup from you. See, the greater protection, the greater salvation from the greater enemy actually required the Messiah's death. And it's uh, worth reflecting on uh, Hebrews. You know, I talked this out. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8, um, I wonder whether, as the writer to the Hebrews is thinking about Jesus, he's thinking about this episode with Hezekiah. Because what he says there is, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, just like Hezekiah, right? Praying with tears. To the one who could save him from death, just like Hezekiah. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learnt obedience from what he suffered. And when Hezekiah is reflecting on his own experience there in chapter 38, he says, in verses 18 and 19, he says that I have learnt humility. I have learnt that what my, the suffering that I went through was actually for my good. Just like Jesus learned obedience by going through what he suffered. So you see here, I think, a bit of a, 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 an early shadow of the greater prayer that Jesus would pray and the greater salvation Jesus would win. And so how does that affect you and me? Do you need deliverance? Yeah. Not really. Life's pretty good. Nice that took away the exams. <laughs> uh, good. Oh, well, it's just good sometimes trying to stick your head up out of the library and actually look at the wider world. <laughs> I mean that in a good way, like, I understand that life crowds in sometimes, but you know, we need deliverance from all sorts of things. We need deliverance from external things and internal things. We need deliverance from external evil. Now I know there will be people in this room today who have suffered significantly wickedness from the hands of others. Do we need deliverance? Yes, we need deliverance. But I think all of us also struggle with internal threats. 
we're tempted all the time to move away from our faith in the one true living God to trust other things, to run down to Egypt, as we said last week. Let me just throw out a few examples of the sort of temptations we might find. Do you ever find yourself tempted to pride? Do you ever find yourself tempted to selfishness? Do you find yourself tempted sexually? Do you find yourself tempted to lie in order to look good? Do you find yourself tempted to slander or gossip in order to look good? Do you find yourself tempted to harshness or meanness, normally with your family? Do you ever find yourself tempted to impurity of any sort, in deed or word or thought? Do you find yourself tempted to jealousy or hatred? Do you find yourself tempted to greed or to discontentment? We need deliverance, don't we? Doesn't that make sense of Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer? Deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. We need deliverance. And the good news of the Christian gospel is this. Jesus has secured your deliverance in his death and resurrection. Jesus empowers your present deliverance from being a slave to sin by his spirit that he's put in you. Jesus will consummate your deliverance when he returns in glory. And Jesus right now, the New Testament says, is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for your deliverance. He's praying for you. That's the truth of what the greater Messiah is doing and has done and will do for your deliverance. Get that truth in your head. Live in the light of that. Now we need to pause there, stop there. There's a whole third thread to go, but let me just tell you about the third thread. The third thread is actually the the anti-pattern. There's a threat that Babylonians want to form a political alliance. We know, right? We've followed Isaiah. Bad news, don't do it. That's the threat. Instead of a prayer, no prayer. There's just Hezekiah's own pride, according to two, two Chronicles. He doesn't pray. He just goes, well, yeah, big Babylonian guys want to come and see us. Let's time to show off. He shows them all their gold, all their silver, all their weapons. Look at all our stuff. We're pretty cool. Word of the Lord, deliverance. Word of the Lord saying, one day all those goods you have shown them will be taken off to Babylon. Prophecy of the exile. Judgment. And you know what Hezekiah does right at the end then? He says, well, the word you have spoken is good because he thinks to himself, at least there will be peace and security in my own lifetime. Gee, that's... Thumbs up to that, Hezekiah. Thanks for looking out for everybody and thinking... And you know what? I think that's deliberate. I think that right at the last moment, the last mention of Hezekiah, good guy though he was, is unfaithful. And you know, from that point on, though there's Manasseh and other kings to come, Isaiah just basically isn't concerned about them. The rest of Isaiah, the the only king you really want is the Lord and the true Messiah who will come. And that drives us to annual conference. (laughs) (laughs) Where you meet Jesus. I pray, have a great exam time. Simon time. I look forward to seeing you next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and grace to us. We thank you for your reality that you've demonstrated in saving your people through the death and resurrection of your Son and the pouring out of your Spirit. 
And we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that we are people of true faith, that we might trust you, rest in you, and bring glory to your name by being obedient to you. We pray for Jesus' name's sake and in the power of his spirit. Amen.